morning, church. I'm Pastor Jay. That will be a series we're starting in two weeks. From today, popular deceptions of our age. It was hard just to pick nine of them <laughs> for the series. There are so many, but along that line, <clears throat> before I preach this morning, I wanted to just say a pastoral word about our Supreme Court ruling uh, this past Friday. I read this in the first service. I want to read it this morning in this service. As we all know by now on Friday, June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court of the United States overturned Roe v. Wade from 1973. And now the new case, Dobbs v. Jackson. And we are thankful to God for this ruling. It is a reminder of the sanctity of human life. As the Bible reveals, taking it as the word of God, every human life from conception to the grave and beyond was made in the image of God and is therefore has intrinsic dignity and worth. One of the messages I will be bringing in this new series is about unborn life and that it's sacred and needs to be protected. It's fully human. This last Friday, our president of our denomination, Kevin Complin, said in a mass email to all 1,300 plus free churches across the country, he said these words, the Supreme Court's ruling on Friday presents our churches with an opportunity to provide compassion and support for pregnant mothers and their unborn children, along with their families and the communities where they live. And beloved, that's where we as a church come in. More than ever, this is the hour for not only our church, but for the church of Jesus to step up and show the love of Christ in our communities through supporting things like adoption and foster care and crisis pregnancy services and caring for unwed mothers and <clears throat> being generous givers financially to these causes above and beyond our tithing. As voices across our nation continue to elevate the discourse surrounding abortion, we must listen to the Lord and his heart and have compassion for the unborn, for women, families, and all who have experienced the brokenness of abortion. And so may we step into that gap and fill that need. But this is a new day, and may God give us the courage to continue in this important battle. Genesis chapter 37 is our text this morning. We are concluding a three-part series in the life of Joseph. And today we're going to be talking about one of the hardest things a human being can be called on to do, and that is forgive somebody who has abused them. Some of you have been horrifically abused or treated horribly by somebody. All of us have been betrayed <clears throat> at some point in our life, been intentionally targeted, treated with injustice. Someone has been cruel to us, and the question is, how do you go about forgiving them? There is some very deep pain, even here just in one worship service of those. And most of us have wronged people and wounded them and mistreated them. And this pain only is intensified in our life if we've been abused, if we then don't forgive and we don't let it go and we don't choose to become forgivers. Becky and I, uh, when we arrived in our first church years ago in Minnesota, <clears throat> uh, two of the most prominent families in the church. This is a small rural church. The whole town was smaller than this church. But it was a small rural church out in the country, and two of the 
key families in the church, one was an elder and his wife, and one was a key in the music ministry, they, uh, we found out they had not been speaking to each other for a number of years, that they hated each other, they wouldn't talk, and somebody forgot to tell us that when we interviewed for the job. But we found out soon. Finally, after about three years, we got the two families to sit in our living room in the parsonage and actually reconcile. And it brought a measure of healing and a new spirit into the church. But that's how common this is. That's how deeply these things operate. This weekend, as we are concluding this series, we're going to look at the life of Joseph and at his ability to forgive. We've learned already, in case you're visiting, we've been looking at his story. His story is well known to many of us, but some of us aren't familiar with it. But we've learned how uh, he was wounded, he was betrayed, he was wronged, he was treated cruelly, he was sold into human trafficking, and this went on for several decades. And yet, when he was done, he had a very critical choice. Do I forgive or do I get bitter and hang on to my grudges? Friends, I believe God has a message here. I believe some of us need to be set free. I think God has a word for us today to set us free if we will hear him. We're only going to look at two words today. First part of the sermon, betrayal. Second part, forgiveness. Shouldn't be too hard. You've already got the sermon outline memorized right there. Betrayal, forgiveness. This one will preach. If you ever get called on to preach on, a, on, on the spot, there you go. You got your sermon right there. First of all, chapter 37, betrayal. Uh, just a bit of review. It's always good to review. Chapter 37 is where the story of Joseph begins. Joseph's story runs from chapter 37 to chapter 50, operates in Genesis as a very controlling narrative, uh, contains about 20% of the entire book of Genesis. Joseph's star- story begins when he's 17, ends when he's 110. So in, he's 17 years old in chapter 37, he's about 110 years old in chapter uh, 50, and uh, when he eventually dies. Due to the favoritism of his dad, Jacob, when he was a teenager, his brothers, his older brothers, his 11 older brothers hated him, or he had, no, he had 10 older brothers, one younger, but they all, they hated him. His older brothers just absolutely hated him. And uh, due to his brother's hatred, they plotted to kill him. I'm going to plug into the story, chapter 37, verses 17 and following. Actually, it's right in the middle of 17, a reminder that the verse numbering system was not added to well over a thousand years after the Bible was written. Sometimes it doesn't get it quite right. So this, where I want to pick up is actually right in the middle of verse, what we call verse 17. Due to his brother's intense hatred of Joseph, they plotted, first of all, to kill him, then to just simply beat him up, throw him in a pit, and eventually then sell him into human trafficking and become a slave. I mean, just cruelty upon cruelty upon injustice upon uh, betrayal right in the middle of verse 17 so joseph went after his brothers he's a a teenager he's looking for his brothers they're shepherds found him at dothan they saw him from afar and before he came near to them they conspired against him to kill him now when it comes to bitterness unforgiveness and hatred there's nothing like family hatred it runs deep in people related to each other, the deepest. Call these crimes of passion. So that's the kind of uh, intensity that's operating. They saw him from afar. Let's plan to kill him. Verse 20, they said to one another, here comes his dreamer. Come now, let us kill him, throw him into one of the pits. 
Then we will, so not only is that cruel, then they're going to fabricate a, a lie. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him, and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Then one of the brothers has a second thought. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. And then we pick up in verse 23, the rest of what happened. They finally end up selling him into slavery. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his robe of many colors. They took him, threw him into a pit. Pit was empty. There was no water in it. We don't know how deep it was. He sat down to eat. They sat down to eat. And then looking up, they come up with an even greater evil scheme. Not only have they now betrayed their brother and they're going to lie about him to their father, let's make money. I mean, that's their next thought. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Gilead is in modern-day Jordan, and the slave trade was very common on the Arabian Peninsula. I, made a, I said just a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, technically, formally, uh, slavery was only outlawed in Yemen and Saudi Arabia back in the early 1960s. So slavery, slave trade has taken place in that region for thousands of years. This was very common. Here comes a caravan of Ishmaelites. They are involved in human trafficking and slavery. The brothers see this, they know this, and in their mind they start seeing dollar signs. And so this group is coming with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh on their way down to Egypt. Brothers think instant solution. Let's sell them, we'll make money, we'll get rid of them all in one swath. And Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill him and conceal his blood? Verse 27, come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him as if this somehow absolves them of all the evil they've done. For he is our brother in our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. So as we all know, there's no hatred like family hatred. Family hatred between siblings, between spouses, between mothers and fathers, between children and parents, or parents and kids, or cousins, or whatever. There is no hatred. There is no animosity. There is no bitterness like in families and extended families. It runs deep, and it's visceral. Uh, just in recent years, as I was working on this, it brought to mind the Koch brothers, K-O-C-H, whose story has been in the headlines over the last several decades. The Coke, Coke Industries, centered in Kansas, is the second largest privately held company, owned company in, in, in America. So this is a massive uh, company. Coke, K-O-C-H, employs uh, over 120,000 people in 60 countries. The brothers squared off in lawsuits for decades over money, it was nicknamed the Billionaire's Brawl. There originally were four brothers. The hatred ran very deep in all the public statements and in the court records, the bitterness and the animosity just oozed out to the point when one U.S. district judge put it this way, that this case is obviously driven by family spite and is generally unaffected by financial considerations. So while it was about money, he said, this isn't really about money. These guys hate each other. And they just went at it for decades. That's the kind of hatred and animosity. Fast forward, as we've learned, Joseph's brothers betray him. They mistreat him. They end up, he ends up in Egypt as a slave where his master's wife accuses him of 
rape, which is innocent, but he goes into jail, he goes into prison, he's falsely accused, he ends up in the prison system. Go back and look at all the words that apply over the last several years. He's hated, he's betrayed, he is sold into human trafficking and slavery. He is falsely accused. He ends up in prison. He is forgotten. The hits just keep coming. And this goes on for years. Now, here's the bottom line. Anytime we're abused by anybody, and some of us are sitting here today and the pain is still very deep about the way we've been treated by somebody. Anytime we're physically abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused, lied about, oppressed, taken advantage of, wrongly blamed, the list could go on. Here's the decision we face. Here's the decision I face, every one of us. Will I become bitter and hold a grudge? Or will I choose to forgive and let it go? And here's the key. My choice at that point, how I choose to respond to someone who has abused me, shows what I really think about God. I can say all kinds of things. I can even recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. I can sing hymns where I'm affirming all sorts of stuff. But if I'm holding a grudge against somebody, that shows what I really believe. My systematic theology comes out in my relationship with someone that has abused me. In his book on forgiveness, R.T. Kendall, I'm going to quote the book towards the end of the message too, good book, Total Forgiveness, he says this, although we don't often see it at first, all of our bitterness, so throw all of it in one basket, all of our bitterness is ultimately traceable to resentment of God. A lot of us wouldn't connect those dots. You'd think, no, I'm not resentful of God, I'm resentful towards that idiot. That boss, that spouse, that parent, that pastor, that employer, that neighbor, that relative, that uncle, fill in the blank. But Kendall has seen something that goes deeper, and it is this. Although we don't often see it at first, all of our bitterness is ultimately traceable to resentment of God. Why? Because it was God who brought these circumstances into our life in the first place. Painful as they may be, we've seen that with Joseph. And if I am going to say, I will not forgive this person, I am going to hold this over their head, what I am saying is, no matter what you decided, Lord, no matter how you arranged this, you're the one that's guilty. And I am bitter and resentful towards God. So that is the betrayal part of this this morning and the intensity of the hatred here uh, among the brothers ran very, very deep. That brings us to chapter 50 and forgiveness. It has approximately been two decades from chapter 37 to chapter 50. Joseph's story starts when he's 17, and we know he stepped into Pharaoh's service, being delivered from prison, becoming the second most powerful man in the world at age 30. So somewhere he ends up and it's been about somewhere between 10, 15 years between the time he was a teenager and he steps in. But then we know more time has taken place before we get to chapter 50 because seven years of plenty have come and now we're two years into the famine. So we're roughly 20 years 
into the betrayal and the story. Joseph ends up being elevated from prison, becomes the second most powerful, incredible story, <laughs> just amazing story, second most powerful man on the planet. And during a severe famine that has ensued, Israel now, north of them, where Joseph's family is from, is starving, and his brothers have to come south. They come to Egypt, where they know there's supplies for sale, and they find themselves in front of Joseph. They don't recognize him. They don't know who he is. It's been a long time, 20 years. They don't know him. He obviously looks Egyptian. He speaks Egyptian. He, interesting, he uses a translator so that they don't understand. He understands Hebrew. It's a fascinating story. In chapter 45, by the way, there is an, a, a, a very emotional reunion. I love chapter 45, about the reunion there. But in chapter 50, uh, we come to this part where Joseph forgives. Joseph talks to them about what they did, how they, how they treated him, and then what he chose to do. So I'm going to start at verse 15, chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us, you think, <laughs> and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they don't play it down. They know what they did to their brother, even though it had been a couple decades. That kind of evil doesn't just disappear through the years. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Now, whether the father did or not, we don't know. Maybe, they, maybe they're lying. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So you're even quoting Jacob as saying, yeah, they did evil. Now please forgive the transgression, they bring it up again, of the servants, the God of your father. Joseph wept when he spoke to them, when they spoke to him. We saw Joseph weep earlier. He would leave their presence and weep. Here he weeps openly, a very tender man. His brothers came, fell down before him and said, behold, we're your servants. This is at least, by the way, the third time that his brothers have fulfilled a dream God gave to Joseph when he was only 17, that one day his brothers would bow down to him. This is at least the third mention of that. The divine writer of scripture wants to keep driving this home, that this dream was of God and it was fulfilled. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. This, the wording here is so gospel-centered. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Last week we noted the same word, you meant evil, that Hebrew verb, God meant, you meant, God meant. That's the same Hebrew verb used twice. It doesn't just say God used it for good. No, God arranged this for good. All of this, Joseph said, God did it to me. God did it for all of us. You did this. God ordained that you would do your evil actions, and yet he's innocent. You're guilty. And then God intended it for good in my life, and God somehow is innocent, and yet he ordained the whole process. God wounded Joseph for a number of years to bring about good. Because he said it is for good to bring about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. And then again in tenderness and compassion. No, this, what a great example for us. So don't fear. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. So he wept, verse 17, he knew their hearts had changed and then he forgave them and he saw God's perspective, verse 20. He understood, I mean, verse 20, the providence, the doctrine of God's providence in verse 20 is rich and deep. Joseph looks at the whole situation over several decades and says, yeah, it was filled with pain for me. Yes, God wounded me. Yes, this was difficult. Yes, this was brutal. And God did it for good. He is fully sovereign in control, and he's good. And it allowed him to forgive. All right, I want to get very practical at this point. Because all of us have been wounded, all of us have been hurt to differing degrees. I don't know how much you've been wounded and abused and mistreated and betrayed. You don't know how much I have or Becky has. That's not the point. The point is all of us have experienced this and many of us have done it to others. So the question is, how do I begin to work through a process of forgiving somebody who has abused me? These are in no particular order really, Maybe number one is the most important for that, but I want to walk through just several biblical steps about how to begin the process of forgiving somebody who has abused us. Friends, God will set you free if you start walking this path. And there is great hope for you if you follow what God has said. Number one, realize that admitting to bitterness is extremely difficult. I mean, being honest about bitterness in my own life is extremely difficult. It is one of the most difficult sins to own and confess. I am convinced we have a thousand ways to justify our bitterness. I confronted a staff person once years ago in another church who was very bitter towards another staff person. And I just said to him, I said, I'm concerned about your bitterness towards so-and-so, And immediately, I'm not bitter towards them. I smiled and said, look at your body language. Listen to the tone of your voice. Well, I'm not bitter. I said, okay, what is it? And his answer was, it's just I have energy towards them. (laughs) That's actually what he said. Later on, he joked about it with me because he thanked me for calling him out. I said, (laughs) I mean, Ford said, you have, and I repeated his word, you have energy towards them. What does that mean? And I didn't let it go. I said, no, you're bitter towards them. That's what this is. And he finally confessed it. And it was beautiful. There was reconciliation. There's a thousand ways we justify our bitterness towards somebody and our unforgiveness. And I'll tell you something. This is one of the most common problems on the mission field. When Becky and I have been with mission teams over the years, we've had the privilege, and I mean that, to sit with many different mission teams, and a mission team means a group of missionaries in one area that work together on a team, a city team or a regional team or a field team. Becky and I have often had the, the, the privilege to sit with them in their meetings or to speak to them. Uh, one of the things we've seen that infects mission teams is bitterness, unforgiveness, because you have a small group of people that come together who are called by God, they're working in a hostile environment, they work very closely together, they're very passionate, and they inevitably wound and offend each other. And something because they're very strong, they have differences of opinion sometimes how to do ministry, and, and they wound, and, 
And we found that a lot of them struggle with bitterness. The two greatest sins that take people off the mission field are sexual immorality and bitterness and broken relationships. So, for instance, we're, Becky and I are leaving for Honduras this week. And I've been asked to share. She's going to be speaking. But the thing I've been asked to share this next week is to talk with their leadership team, uh, uh, give a devotional. And I said, no problem. I know what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to be talking about bitterness. Are you guys all clean with each other? Uh, several years ago in Costa Rica, I did the same thing on Skype with a whole bunch of missionaries. We were, they're all, you know, I got all their little pictures on the screen. And I said, I'm going to share a devotional today with you all. They were in a number of areas around uh, Central America. I said, I'm going to speak about forgiveness. And one of them later admitted, I, I thought that was a really weird subject for you to talk about with us as missionaries. I thought you were going to talk about, uh, you know, pressing on or having hope. Or I said, well, those are all good subjects. But then she finally admitted, but this, we really did need to hear this. It, is, it runs deep in mission teams. It runs deep in churches, in leadership teams, and in pews. And it's one of the hardest things to admit to. And so that is the first one, owning that. Secondly, understand what forgiveness is and is not. I have gone over this before, but it is, it's something we need to review regularly. So what is it not? Forgiveness is not, and we see it right here in this text very clearly, it is not downplaying the evil or the wrong that someone did to you. And some of us feel like that's what it is. It's kind of like saying, no, that's not a big deal. That's not a good thing to say to somebody if they are apologizing to you or if you're going to forgive. It was a big deal. So forgiveness is not downplaying. Joseph didn't downplay it. They didn't downplay it. They're very clear. What they did was evil. And that is part of the restoration and healing project. That's part of the repentance that needs to take place. Why? Because if they didn't do anything wrong, there's nothing to forgive. For someone just to say, well, I forgive you, the next question is, for what? And so it has to be there was a wrong committed, there was a sin, so forgiveness is not downplaying what was done. So what is it? In the phrase that we have found so helpful, forgiveness is an act of blame. Forgiveness is an act of blame. I've said this many times before. I will say it many times again. It's something, I, I know this phrase, I use this phrase, and I forget this phrase. Because in the intensity of the moment, we forget. But that's what it is. It's, you're actually saying, I'm blaming you. But I'm not going to hold it over your head anymore. That's what it is. Here it is, if you want a verse, 1 Corinthians 13.5. 1 Corinthians 13.5. Here's forgiveness. Quote, Refusing to keep any record of wrong. That's what it is. Meaning we refuse to dwell on it anymore. I mean, you're not going to literally scrub it from your brain, but you're not going to dwell on it anymore. You're not going to let it dominate you anymore. You're not going to have these private conversations with them in your room when they're not there and debate with them when they're not there. You all know what I'm talking about. I've done it. And you're not going to retaliate anymore. Thirdly, Realize what forgiveness is based on if you are a born-again Christian. In Matthew 18, the story that was read for us this morning by Kelly, Jesus tells the story of this master who forgave a servant, depending on the actual uh, conversion of the currency rates there in the, in, in the text, somewhere between you know, 
several hundred million dollars, a couple billion dollars, some astronomical amount that the guy can never repay. A master forgives a servant of this just astronomical amount of money and says, I'm not going to throw you into debtor's prison. I forgive you. Finds out that the guy turns around, refuses to forgive another servant of just a small amount of money and then has him thrown into debtor's prison. The height of hypocrisy. So forgiveness is based on the fact that if I know Christ as Savior, if I have been forgiven of all my sin and garbage in my life, which there's lots, the very fact of turning around with someone else means I'm treating them with the gospel, just like I was treated with the gospel, if I'm a true Christian and have been set free. The point is, for a true Christian, forgiveness is based on how God has treated me. I am going to treat someone likewise. Otherwise, how dare I not forgive them just because they lied to me or betrayed me or plotted against me or physically or verbally abused me. I don't forgive them of that one or two things when my Heavenly Father has forgiven me for a lifetime of garbage. That's key. Number four, remember the consequences if I choose not to forgive. Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to turn there for just a moment. You're welcome to turn there. Matthew chapter 6. This is Jesus talking. He's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes one of his most pointed statements about forgiveness and the lack of it and the danger of it. You're getting just a little bit of a preview of what I'll be sharing with the Honduras leadership team this week. Matthew 6. 14 and 15. Remember the consequences of choosing not to forgive. Now, let me say, a lot of people read this and try to soften it or say, oh, that's not what he really meant. I'm just going to read what he says. Verse 14, chapter 6. This is Jesus. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's good news. That's gospel. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That stings. Chapter 18, we saw a similar story of a servant who was forgiven but refused to forgive. Interesting, in verse 34 of Matthew 18, we read this. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers, that's, not a, that's a pretty soft word for that Greek word. The Greek word translated jailers really means the tormentors or the torturers. The question is, what does Jesus mean? He's saying, look, if I hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, I will be handed over to the tormentors, the torturers. This is speaking of God's eternal judgment. In other words, I will lose out on heaven and gain hell. Now, just to be clear, because this is critical. <clears throat> Jesus is not teaching that we're saved by forgiving other people. That's not what he's saying here. That's moralism. And it would go against everything the New Testament teaches. It would go against everything the Bible teaches about salvation. That's not. The point of Matthew 6, 15 and Matthew 18, 34 is that if I cling, cling, to an unforgiving spirit, and this keeps going on, and I refuse to forgive, then in the end, what I am proving is that I never knew Christ. 
and I don't understand the gospel or grace. That is what Jesus is saying here. I'm not forgiven, I'm not saved by forgiving people. But the longer I hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness, there may be some here today and you've been holding on to it for a long time. The longer that goes on, the less likely it is that you really know Christ. The less likely it is that you are truly saved. And number five, remember what real forgiveness looks like. This one's very helpful. I take this from R.T. Kendall's book, Total Forgiveness. I'm paraphrasing these six things. Here's six signs that you've really forgiven somebody. It's one thing to say, oh yeah, I forgive. But this is what it looks like when you really have forgiven somebody. So young people, kids, and adults, all of us need to hear these. Because we all have a tendency, I know I do, I'll just be honest, to say, oh yeah, I forgive, but then I don't let it all go. So what does it really look like? Here are the six things. Six signs that I have totally forgiven someone. One, we don't talk about it to others anymore. We don't talk about it with others anymore that aren't involved. Number two, we don't try to intimidate the person anymore. If I have forgiven them, I'm done. I don't try to intimidate them. Number three, we don't let them feel guilty. We don't let them feel guilty. Number four, this is interesting, we let them save face in any other situations when we're with them. We let them save face. We don't use this against them. Number five, we keep on forgiving them and don't pull it out months and years later. And number six, this one's very convicting, we pray for them to be blessed and we let them off the hook. Notice I didn't, he didn't say I didn't, we don't just pray for them. It's easy to pray for people that have betrayed you. I, here's the J prayer. Oh God, I pray for Joe who betrayed me. May he fall in a ditch and break his neck. <laughs> Amen. Well, that is a prayer for him. But that's not, that's not necessarily a Christian prayer. We pray for them. Jesus said, pray for your enemies to be blessed. Pray for those who persecute you. And so one of the signs that I really have forgiven somebody, one of the signs, young people, that you've really forgiven somebody is that you pray for them to be blessed and you let them off the hook. I'm going to close with a story from a woman some of you have heard of, some of you have never heard of her, Corrie Ten Boom. It's one of the lesser-known stories from her life. She grew up in the Netherlands. Her sister, her and Betsy, were taken into a prison camp during World War II very early on. Unfortunately, her sister Betsy died in that prison camp from abuse and from malnutrition and all sorts of things. Corrie Ten Boom was eventually released. She ended up eventually moving to America, died in California. She spoke around the world of her experiences in the Nazi concentration camp system. At one of the events, years later, she was speaking. Afterwards, lines of people would form and come talk to her and share, and they wanted prayer. And in that line, in one of these events, was one of her former SS German prison guards from the German concentration camp Ravensbrück. She recognized him, 
How do you forget that? And he recognized her. She hated him. She hated him. And there he was standing in line. He got up to her, told her he had been converted to Jesus Christ as Lord and wanted to ask her forgiveness. That in itself is interesting. I want you to hear her response because it's raw and it's very real. These are her words. As he reached out to shake my hand, she, she says, I froze. Quote, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. Now, if you've ever seen Corey Ten Boom, she looks like this meek little old grandma kind of person. Vengeful thoughts boiled through me. Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity towards this man. So I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I can't forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. Hear this, church. From my shoulder along my arm, so just in sheer obedience, she reached, he grabbed his hand. So he took his hand from my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that was almost overwhelming. And so I discovered that when God tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command the love itself. Isn't that a great story? That is the power available in the gospel to forgive those who have abused us.